0: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to my colleague James Meek, a contributing editor at the LRB, who reported from Kiev for The Guardian in the early 1990s and was for many years that paper's Moscow correspondent. He also reported from Afghanistan and Iraq when the United States and its allies, including the UK, invaded those countries. And his most recent book is a novel, To Calais in Ordinary Time. He returned to Kiev the week before the Russian invasion of Ukraine last week wrote a series of posts from there for the LRB blog. In January, he wrote a piece for the LRB on Vladimir Putin's relations with his neighbours, in which he asked what might a new invasion of Ukraine by Russia look like. We now know the beginning of the answer to that question. We're speaking on the morning of Tuesday, the 1st of March, six days into the war, as a huge Russian convoy is said to be approaching Kiev. Hello, James, and thank you for talking with me. Hi. I said just now that it's six days into the war, but from one point of view, what's happening now is the escalation of a walk that's been going on for more than seven years now.
1: Yes, that's right. It began, of course, with... Well, you can always go back further in time to find a beginning of things, uh, but I suppose you could say the uh, the starting point was... A disagreement, um, a, a very sharp disagreement within Ukraine between those people who valued closer ties with the European Union uh, and those people who felt, with, very much with Russia's encouragement, that any closer ties with the European Union would be hostile towards Russia and meant that Ukraine would have to renounce its ties with, with Russia. Um, This sort of zero sum game approach of of Putin's, uh, which was not really based in in reality, but based in in Russia's particular exclusive, exclusionary politics. So the tension began to ratchet up in 2013 when the then Ukrainian president, um, generally seen as a sort of Russian stooge and an extremely corrupt individual, Um, Viktor Yanukovych, Um, he for many, many months insisted that he was going to go ahead with a closer partnership with the European Union. And to the point where he was even punishing members of his own party who who dared to contradict him. And then at the very last moment, when this seemed like a done deal, he switched around. Uh, He announced that he was not going to go into a partnership deal with the European Union. He was going to enter into a partnership with Russia instead. And uh, this understandably upset a lot of people in Ukraine who, who'd expected closer ties with Europe. So protests began but initially they were on a very small scale uh, and it might really have ended there and petered out had it not been for the uh, extreme and careless nature of the of the way that the Yanukovych government started attacking the protesters. The protesters, um, the protesters were, were violently attacked by by Ukrainian police, the, the police were then uh, faced with larger demonstrations. And so the cycle began, which eventually led to this great confrontation lasting many months in the center of Kiev between the security forces of, of this pro-Russian president and those who, who believed that he had lost his legitimacy. They escalated. Uh, eventually, the, uh, Yanukovych fled the country. Um, under a lot of pressure from protesters and from Western governments. It was thought at the time, highly likely, that Russia would stage a military inven- intervention to protect him. And I think they might have done so if he hadn't simply run away. So that would have been a, a very different alternative history. Uh, but since he did run away and the uh, the government collapsed and a new uh, Ukrainian government was set up by the uh, the revolutionaries, there was a, a counter reaction in the far east of the country who saw Yanukovych very much as their man um, and who feared with again with with very very strong Russian encouragement and interference that this new regime would would be bad for for Russian speakers for people who wanted close ties with russia and um at that point uh, when there were a few quite uh, strong uh, nationalists in the Ukraine government, but but never really at any point making up anywhere near a majority. Um, it was very much a, a liberal bourgeois revolution supported by people from the more nationalist sides of society, but nationalist in the kind of Russian nationalist, Scottish nationalist, any patriotic sense, people who love their country. So um, there was this fear in the far east of the country. They began their demonstrations russian agents russian mercenaries quickly became involved Um, there were seizures of public buildings and before things in the east really uh, took off the russians made this decision to quite illegally and in violation of of all international law uh, to seize crimea where they had a large naval base in sevastopol or sebastopol as um british people tend to call it And they feared, again, not with a huge amount of of justification, that somehow Ukraine, uh, a more westward leaning Ukraine, would not only strengthen their hold on on Crimea, but would actually threaten the presence of the Russian military in that base. So they put into effect um, a long, drawn-up plan to annex Crimea, and I think the feeling, I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but I think the, the feeling pretty strongly in Ukraine proper at that time was, well, it's true, most people in Crimea have never really been enthusiasts for an independent Ukraine. If this is the price that we, the rest of Ukraine, have to pay for our freedom and our democracy, then it's a price worth paying. Uh, we don't want to lose Crimea, and it's it's a tragedy for the ethnic Tatar minority living there. But if um, if that's the price, then we'll, we'll let it go. And so Ukraine did not resist. Ukrainian forces did not put up a fight. They let Russia have um, its illegal annexation of Crimea. And again, it could have ended there. There was still this considerable tension between the east of the country and and the centre and the west. But it was never on the cards that some kind of nationalist extreme nationalist junta was going to key, stay in power in uh, in Kiev without elections uh, and sure enough there were elections and had the the Russians not encouraged the violence and the uh, the influx of weapons that poured into eastern Ukraine at this point had they not encouraged this and had they not led people to believe by their annexation of Crimea that Russia could just um take bits of Ukraine without any resistance, then I think in the course of things that the natural balance of Ukrainian politics would have reasserted itself, there would have been a compromise government in Kiev. Um, It would have been predominantly, shall we say, bourgeois nationalist, uh, bourgeois patriotic, but it would have had a very large proportion of people who didn't want to lose uh, connection with Russia um, and who would have thus, you know, in a tense and difficult way, but nonetheless peacefully, eventually reached some kind of compromise, uh, which would have seen Ukraine continue to build its very, very, very slow and painful way towards um, selfhood and uh, and, and self determination. But the Russians did decide to to intervene at that point in 2014, and that was when one can talk about uh, an actual invasion. What happened was the rebels in eastern Ukraine who didn't accept the new the new outcome, and and who didn't accept all Ukrainian elections to to find out how people wanted to settle things after the revolution. The eastern Ukrainian rebels began shooting. They began killing uh, Ukrainians and capturing Ukrainians, declaring their own law. And the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, such as they were, they were very, very weak um, and scattered at that time. They began trying to exercise a kind of exaggerated police action. Uh, when, when you've got people firing machine guns and tanks at you, clearly, it's, it's a police action of a special kind. So it was But there were
0: also I mean, what about the the um, as of battalion and the, the far right militias?
1: That was the next stage, the Ukrainian army was so so weak at this stage, that volunteers began to, to take up the slack. And so-called battalions of of volunteers were were formed and it was they funded by um, wealthy Ukrainians and in some cases, in many cases, containing quite um, extreme nationalist figures did take part in, in combat action. And it was the, I think the Azov battalion who led the first big setback for the rebels in the east, when they recaptured the city of Mariupol um, in in Donetsk region from the rebels,
0: and there are some, without suggesting that that as Putin tried to do, that all Ukrainian nationalists or patriots are like this, that the you know there are there are pictures of the Azov Battalion with swastika flags. I mean, there were not only far right, but you know so far right that neo-Nazi seems not an unfair label.
1: Absolutely. It's a persistent theme of Ukrainian politics. But it really is a, on the one hand, it's, it's a small minority. And in the context of that particular war, to, to talk about the the Azov fighters carrying out atrocities and expressing racial ideas, as true as that is, uh, it was not noticeably different in in its effect from the other side so if you pick out the as of nationalists then you're kind of you're kind of ignoring the the nationalists on the other side i mean this is this is where the the symbolism becomes very difficult because from our history if you see a swastika on something and if you see a Soviet symbol, a hammer and sickle or St. George's medal on something, then you immediately make the, the, the priority of, of who is worse and who is better. And, and in the context of the Second World War, there is no doubt that the Nazis were worse um, and the Soviets were better. But in the context of now, th- there was at that point in, in 2014, not so much of a difference. If, if you are using your, the language of, of race and the justification of history to kill people and to torture people and to shoot people in cold blood, then the symbols of that, no matter how different they might have been 50 years earlier, the difference between them becomes much less and perhaps non-existent. So in in the context of the atrocities and the murders carried out by the Azov battalions and the the forces of the the rebels uh, supported by Russia, in the east in 2014, um, I think to, to put a, a ring around the, uh, the Ukrainian nationalists and ignore the uh, equally vicious and brutal Russian nationalists on the other side is, was wrong then and is even more wrong now. So after this fairly short and intense phase when the, the Ukrainian volunteers took the battle to the Ukrainian rebels, The Ukrainian military, in a more organized sort of way, directed by the Ukrainian government, did take the lead and managed to push back the rebels and probably would have won, probably would have um, entered Donetsk, entered Lugansk, pushed back to the border. Who knows what would have happened then, what the consequences of that would have been, what kind of reprisals would have been carried out, what kind of peace these two sides might have might have negotiated but that was not allowed to happen because it was at that point that the russians did stage their actual invasion the actual russian armed forces pushed back against the, the ukrainians and the sort of the hidden work of the russian troops plus the not so hidden work of the of the Ukrainian rebels was enough to to secure a small corner of far eastern Ukraine in the Donbass for the rebels. And, and a, a a dividing line was drawn between them that, that persisted then for um, from about 2015 until a few days ago in the east. So that became the kind of the status quo, that became the subject of peace talks, that became the um, subject of Russia's concern, of um, Ukraine's concern. There was sporadic shelling and shooting, but it, it seemed like a kind of stable situation. And although people always expected the worst, the kind of the worst that was expected was that Russia would step in to take the whole of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. But uh, things turned out differently.
0: and the, the, And the turning out differently began to look as if it might happen when Putin started moving Russian troops into Belarus and along the Ukrainian border but even then I mean even until the moment until the I mean the fact that you you left Kiev the day before they crossed the border even the day before it still looked more than possible that they would all pack up and go home and that this wouldn't happen
1: and they did and and I think those uh commentators who were well I mean they were two areas where predictions were made, which turned out to be entirely accurate. Um, and one of those areas, of course, was was the United States government, backed up by by the British government, who gave a very full, a very clear, and as it turns out, entirely accurate uh, forecast of what the Russians were planning to do, namely to uh, launch a full invasion of Ukraine, uh, with the aim of taking over the country decapitating the existing government, uh, the democratically elected government of Ukraine, and replacing it with a, with a more pliable one, on the assumption that most Ukrainians didn't really like them. And the other people who were predicting this were also, on the whole, American. A small group of open-source observers who watch very closely all the various um, open-source material, videos, pictures coming out of Russia and know a lot about military deployments and the things that, that they do. And there was this point a few days before I before I left Kiev where there was this kind of very clear divergence between the Ukrainian authorities and what these open source observers were saying. They were all one assumes, watching the same things. And and the Ukrainians were speaking rather mysteriously about signs that they would see that an invasion was about to happen without specifying what they are, whereas the open source observers were ticking off all the boxes that they saw that an invasion was about to happen. And when the Russians began to spray paint on their tanks these letters, Z, is one of the letters that they, they spray pointed on, very much in the same way as uh, just before the invasion of Iraq. You know, a couple of days before, the American and British forces began to put, I think it was some kind of orange plastic on their vehicles, to, it was a kind of a last minute sign that these are our vehicles, you shouldn't shoot them, over and above any other signs that they might have. And the, the signals from these two areas were so, were so strong, and so, sort of, factual and concrete that although personally I hoped that the invasion would be postponed for as long as possible, at the time I left, I did not believe that it would not happen eventually.
0: But presumably, the, I mean, the Ukrainian authorities had, for political, military, whatever reasons, they couldn't say before it happened, we think it's going to happen. Because the Americans were saying it for them in a sense. And the, like, you, if you're worried your country is going to be invaded, you prepare for it. But presumably, you need to keep saying up until the moment, we don't believe it's going to happen. Because as soon as you say, well, we think it is, you're going to make it happen. So, and given the way that the Ukrainian forces have so far defended better than they were expected to, implies that they were, probably were expecting it and were more prepared. Than anyone, especially Putin, expected them to be.
1: Well, there's a lot to unpack there, <laughs> Tom. I mean, you're, in a way, you're right about preparations for something, making that thing more likely to happen. You know, clearly, if Ukraine, for example, had moved its armed forces up to the border, it would have reinforced the nonsensical, fantastical narrative from the Russians that Ukraine was somehow planning to attack them. But they did not do enough. Uh, they were not prepared generally and they were not prepared particularly for the situation they found themselves in. Uh, They were not prepared generally in the sense that because they were hoping not to panic the population, they didn't take the most elementary measures to make cities and towns more difficult to enter for the invaders in terms of, of tank barriers, sandbags and so on. They did not prepare for blowing up bridges. Uh, I mean, they have blown up quite a few bridges now, but I mean, I know that because when I drove from Kiev to a place close to the, the Belarusian border on Monday, so eight days ago and uh, four days before the invasion, Ukrainian road workers were still repairing bridges, still building roads, uh, repairing roads. The driver said to me, sort of forgetting the context, he said, oh, look, they're building a new road. And I said, yeah, maybe they should, maybe they should hold off a
0: bit. And they definitely were building them. But they, well, they weren't secretly... They weren't taking them down. them down. I mean,
1: you know, destroying a bridge is not going to um, stop a Russian army for very long. But there was just this sense of denial that that this was going to happen. So in general terms, across the whole of Ukraine, they failed to prepare in, in that sense. And, and, you know, I think at an earlier stage, it would have been wiser to have talked to people about what might be about to come. But in a specific sense as well, they found themselves in a very tricky position, because it was only really quite a short time before the invasion, a matter of months or, or weeks, that that we realised that Belarus was going to be a jumping off point for, for the Russians, or might be a, a jumping off point. And that made Kiev massively more vulnerable, they would be outflanked. And um, the problem now for Ukraine is that it's, it's most effective fighting strength is in the east, directed towards an attack from from that direction. And although they've clearly moved forces to to Kiev, they're quite thinly spread now. And it's difficult for them to move their forces around to to concentrate them and to bring them to bear On Russian forces. As to the successes of Ukraine so far, they they have been extremely impressive in terms of the incredible courage shown by uh, Ukrainian troops and in terms of the way that they have used the limited resources at their disposal. They have made very effective use of their anti-tank missiles um, they have made very effective use of their aircraft, very limited anti-aircraft missiles, and also these um, these Turkish drones that um, are still somehow flying. And uh, th- that is a sign that that regardless of of their specific levels of preparedness for this particular invasion at this particular time, they had a, a much higher level of of preparedness for for what the Russians were trying to do. But but. I think that is as strange as it may seem relatively trivial in terms of the Ukrainian resistance compared to the degree to which Russia underestimated the general relations of the people of Ukraine, its its thirty seven million strong population, towards Russia and towards its own its own government. Back in twenty fourteen, when Russia staged this um, intervention in Ukraine initially working through its its rebel proxies and then subsequently directly Although right from the beginning in 2014 the Russians were firing artillery from Russia into Ukraine without the Ukrainians being able to shoot back so Russia is um, repeating the mistake that it made in 2014 where it thought that Ukraine was this house of cards that it simply had to give it a little push and it would collapse almost by itself. And you've seen these extraordinary moments over the past few days of, even when it, it should have become absolutely clear to the Russian high command that Ukrainians did not want Russia, did not want to surrender their country. Even when it became clear, the Russians were still sending convoys of police, not army, but police, charging towards Kharkiv and, uh, and Kiev, as if they could just drive up to the parliament or the town hall whatever and arrest the officials, take them away in handcuffs, and everyone would kind of like applaud them. Absolute madness. And of course, many of these Russian police were, were killed. So the first few days has been a story of Russia coming to terms with the political reality in Ukraine, uh, which is that people don't like being invaded and they don't like their houses being blown up and they don't like their children being murdered when they're on their way to school by, by shell fire. And so in, in terms of, of the political aims of the war, it's, it's been a complete disaster for Putin. Yeah. But that does not mean either that Putin will stop or that he will be stopped or that he is even particularly concerned because they have tried the the sort of police action version of events. They have now realized that that's not going to work. They now move on to the Grozny version where tanks and artillery, particularly artillery, and aircraft and missiles will be used in whatever degree of brutality it takes to crush Ukrainian resistance. If that means killing 10,000, okay. If that means killing 100,000, for Putin, I, I don't see that's a problem. You might think, how can he? But I think that's the mistake that we have made since he came to power. He can, and he will. And I do not see... In Russia, now, any mechanism by which he can be removed from power or by which his, uh, his army will can be made to stop, except by an actual uh, NATO intervention, which is not going to happen. Uh, the only possibility that I can see for some kind of Ukrainian resistance before we get to the point where the whole country is, is overrun is a continued supply of um, of weapons to Ukraine in quantities sufficient to keep the Russians on the back foot. Right now, the country has not lost and still Russia is concentrating on these, I, I guess at the moment, it seems to be four areas in, in the east trying to uh, regain the whole of, of Donetsk Oblast. Um, uh, in the northeast, uh, Kharkiv, the second biggest city in Ukraine, in the center of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, uh, and in the south, they are now working to capture all the the cities along the south Black Sea coast from Odessa all the way to Mariupol. They're making progress on all these fronts, but there's still huge areas of the country that they they do not control and have barely been touched by the war, The, the center of the country and the west of the country. These are still in Ukrainian hands. These are still as indeed are Key and Hardkip for the time being. There's still places where Ukrainian units can reform, can regroup, can be re-equipped, and can be augmented by newly mobilized Ukrainian troops coming into coming into action. But again, as things stand, if Russia if Ukraine pushes back, then then Russia pushes more. And that's why I think now we are in this horrific situation where the Ukrainians will fight on because they have nowhere to run to. And the Russians will fight on because Putin does not care about. I I know this sounds emotive and exaggerating and over eviling Putin, but I I honestly do not think I've never seen any sign that he cares about individual human lives. He's just not motivated by that. That they've got such a lock now on the information system in Russia that that leverage, uh, that the, the repressive apparatus is so comprehensive and large. I mean, I pray this may this may change, but I just don't I don't see an opening. I don't see a window. Even before this began, uh, one very perceptive Russian commentator who's very plugged in to what's going on, wrote about how a man. Vladimir Putin, who was never very interested, either in culture or in the economy, had in the past year become completely detached from economic matters. And the oligarchs, even before this began, had lost their access, lost their leverage, lost their um, their way of, of, of getting through to him.
0: But could it get to the point where enough Russian soldiers die? At some point, has has happened before in Russia and elsewhere. What happens if the the soldiers just stop obeying orders? They say we're not doing this anymore.
1: Well, to some extent, that has already happened. Um, and um, you know, I, I I suppose I'm I'm taking this very pessimistic line as as kind of almost kind of part of a charm to try and make something better. And and if I could give you some. Some sign of optimism I would I mean there have been cases of Russians simply walking away not you know walking back to Russia but abandoning their their armored vehicles um, but these may simply be because one or two armored vehicles ran out of petrol or ran out of ammunition it doesn't necessarily mean that, that the whole operation is is slowing down you know I, I have read informed analysts looking at the casualty figures claimed by Ukraine, which which may not be reliable, but they are very high. And they do suggest that Russia's certainly not infinite amounts of, of force, the kind of the tip of its spear, have been very badly degraded. Uh, I mean, if the, the figures that the Ukrainians have been putting out for the number of Russian dead are anywhere near reality, then it's clear that before this is over, at at best, from Russia's point of view, they will lose many more men than America lost during the entire Iraq conflict. But I I don't see that for Putin, that's necessarily a a showstopper. Uh, And I don't see that for the Russian army, that's necessarily a showstopper. If the Ukrainians can continue to inflict damage on the Russian armed forces at the current rate, then yes, perhaps in a month's time we might be having a, a different conversation. But remember, it's not just about the battle. It's also about, can. it's not just about can you, the Ukrainian army hang on uh, and inflict damage on the Russian army. It's also can Ukraine endure seeing apartment block after apartment block be blown up, each with um, hundreds of families in it. How many dead children? How many women with their legs blown off? How many destroyed that, cities can, can Ukraine Ukraine bear? It may be that the answer is a lot and that this is shaping up to be an unprecedented slog that will end up the
0: reducing, u- reducing the entire country to rubble. Because the response to those things historically is often not surrender? No,
1: I mean, I, I go back to, to what happened in, in Grozny, where a city in Vladimir Putin's own country, where he literally destroyed the entire city with shellfire. Yeah. And uh, resistance carried on after that. But it was, it was broken, the, the city side. was rebuilt, and a a kind of a mini dictatorship established Within that city, which which persists to it to this day, um, and that's you know one of the uh, one of the startling features of modern Russia, this country that we we fear so much and seems so strong that um, you fly from Moscow to to Grozny now, and you're going from this hipster reservation in Moscow to this full on brutal torturing dictatorship in Grozny where Russians themselves are not protected, even though this is supposedly in Russia.
0: And that, the Second Chechen War in 1999, was what sort of Putin came to power doing, as it were, wasn't it? And then Grozny, which you know, the UN described as the most destroyed city on earth. And then, but 18 months after that, there was Putin standing side by side with George Bush and Tony Blair and Silvio Berlusconi and Jacques Chirac at, at the G8 conference in Geneva. And that, that has changed. I mean, for whatever reasons for Chechnya, Western Europe didn't care about Chechnya, whether it's because they were Muslims or because they were in Russia, for whatever reason, Western Europe didn't care. And that's not true in Ukraine. So what difference does that make?
1: What difference does it make that Western Europe does care? Yeah, I I think it makes a it makes a very big difference. Even though, again, Putin is not going to lose any sleep because middle-class Muscovites can't buy iPhones anymore. It It's clearly, Russia has now moved into a different relationship with the world, um, much less like China and much more like uh, Iran or even North Korea. It's cut off, it's isolated.
0: But the gas is still pumping.
1: Yes, um, and I think it's going to be very important to us all to see how uh, far... Germany follows through on the um, extraordinary promises that it has made and and hinted at in recent days, doubling its defence budget, uh, building terminals for liquid natural gas, and perhaps most extraordinary of all for a government which is so reliant for its support on, on the Green Party, possibly rethinking its approach to nuclear power. There's a short game here, and there's a long game, and in terms of supporting Ukraine and isolating Russia, Germany, and to some extent other European countries, including Britain, have been making the right noises. The, the short-term game is is to supply Ukraine with weapons to help with refugees. Also, it will be necessary for um, humanitarian aid to go into into Ukraine to help feed and clothe uh, clothes. And support people generally. The longer term project is to wean us off Russian gas. And and that means weaning us off gas in general, which we need to do anyway. Exactly. In that, in that ghastly sense, it's a win. And it was a relief to see that no matter how terrible the Johnson government might be in so many ways, they do seem to have, got the message that it's time to double down on on renewables this, this is uh, not some excuse for a, a mad dash for fracking but a, a reason to not just to build more wind turbines offshore faster around the world and, and not just to build more put up more solar panels um, and to carry on building nuclear power stations uh, but also to get more serious about about storing energy, and probably to uh, to start looking again at, at big water storage facilities for um, for storing renewable energy over long periods of time. Uh, so there, there's much that, that can be done that doesn't involve sending troops to Ukraine.
0: Which, I mean, if one thing which, seems, which Putin seems to have shown is that he's, nothing's going to stop him, as it were, that there, I mean, presumably the fear, the fear that he might if. Pushed to it, would be prepared to use nuclear weapons is not a too far fetched.
1: I think it is far fetched. I think that's I think that's bullshit. I think he's simply using the threat of nuclear weapons against the West because the threat is all he has.
0: And but if but if then in that case, if there were NATO airstrikes, if NATO decided to call his bluff, thought he's not actually going to use these nuclear weapons, why are they not? You know, dropping bombs on the convoy that's going to Kiev now. NATO, yeah,
1: because that would mean a um, a full scale war with with Russia.
0: And the reason not to do that, for militarily, the is the nuclear the fact that they have enough nuclear bombs to is the must be the main thing that's stopping that, isn't it? Because if a conventional war between NATO and Russia, NATO would would win.
1: Well, they? a lot of a lot of NATO troops would die. There would probably be a Russian attack on the Baltic states, an attempt to break through to Kaliningrad. I mean, if you if you talk about the scenario for that, and this is an interesting scenario, but bear in mind, you know, all the people who have been going on and on endlessly about NATO, the terror, how terrible it is that NATO has expanded the east. They always forget to mention the corollary of this which is the mass departure of the American army um, and the British army from Europe. Now, since 2014, since the Russian intervention in Ukraine, there has been a trickle back of forces from Western Europe and North America into Western Europe. But it's very much a trickle. And so for some kind of full-fledged intervention in Ukraine, the forces simply aren't there. The idea that you could somehow scoop up Romanian divisions and, and Polish divisions and um, Hungarian divisions, who wouldn't go anyway, and Slovakian divisions, um, make them all work together with a few American brigades, cobble something together. That's not really a starter. And for those who are saying a no-fly zone, well, think about what that means. The first thing a no-fly zone means is it's not just that you have planes, planes flying around. The first thing that you have to do is to make sure those planes enforcing the no-fly zone cannot be shot down. So the first thing you do is to take out the uh, Russian air defences. And some of those Russian air defences are not in Ukraine. Many of them are in Belarus and in Russia itself. So it would be impossible to enforce a no-fly zone across the whole of Ukraine without actually firing missiles into Russia. The other thing is, supposing you were able to do that, or you, you felt that you would give it a go, you would then be providing a no-fly zone for the Ukrainian army, and anything that the Ukrainian army then did under that air cover, or indeed the Ukrainian air force, would be you would own it. It would be on you. And as much as I admire the valor of the Ukrainian forces, you know that there is always the the temptation to do something brutal as as a shortcut or to terrify the enemy. In the course of in the course of a war, um, so it's that's why it's such a big step. It's it's not just a snap your fingers and it's done kind of thing um, to impose impose a no fly zone. Having said that, I can see a situation where NATO would be prepared in the future to um, have a limited safety area protected by its forces um, in the west of the country, particularly around uh, Lviv. And around uh, Ukrainian Transcarpathia, uh, which is probably the most secure part of Ukraine right now. It's it's right. It's it's surround almost surrounded by NATO countries, and on the side that's not surrounded by NATO countries, it's surrounded by a whole bunch of big mountains. So that is the kind of the ultimate Ukrainian bastion, I guess. So you can imagine at some point if Kharkiv fell. Kiev fell. You can imagine a situation where you had two alternative centers of, of Ukrainian government, um, one in Kiev or Kharkiv, and one in, in the west of the country, one recognized by the west, the other one recognized by Russia. And um, you would move somehow, in some way, to a, a de facto partition of the country. I mean, going back to to something that we were talking about earlier on, in, in terms of could the Russian army take enough losses to force it to stop and you know i said you know it's theoretically possible but i think there's also something else to um to consider here which is that in the first days of of a war and particularly in this context there seems to be quite a lot of evidence that suggests that the russian army and air force and all its various arms didn't know what they were going to be asked to do they didn't know that they were going to go into Ukraine. And if they guessed that they were going to go into Ukraine, they didn't know or they believed their commanders, to the contrary, that there was going to be no real fighting, that the Ukrainians would welcome them with, with, with flowers and kisses. So I think you can imagine putting yourself in the position of these of these troops, that in the first few days, there's this sense of horror, this sense of fear, this sense of shame, but Then the Ukrainians start to hit back. And after the fear and the shame, the Russian forces that survive, they then have this kind of vengeance cycle kicking in. Whatever they might think about Putin, whatever they might think about Russia, whatever they might think about Ukraine, um, those are the enemy, they're killing my friends. And you move into that hideous cycle of wars where um, people who a few days earlier... Could have been chatting amicably over over a beer, and now hate each other more than anything, and and are almost forgetting any context and just want to just want to kill to get their own
0: back. On the NATO question, that you wrote in your your piece in January, that it would have been better if NATO had been abolished when the Soviet Union collapsed, but you then went on to say, "But the the United States would have continued to be powerful and have allies." But is there a plausible? or helpful even um counterfactual history of the last thirty years, in which instead of economic shock therapy, George Bush's New World Order and the the rise of a belligerent and, and oppressive kleptocracy in Russia, the victors in the Cold War could have tried harder or behaved differently to to avoid that, they had not been I mean, I know that his, historical analogies are sort of always, you know, full of problems, but there's a there's how talking about blaming NATO is a bit like blaming what the French wanted from the Versailles Treaty in 1939. Is there some sense in which?
1: Yep, um, I, 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 think, I think that's right. I, um, I'm very sceptical about the idea that this was about NATO because it conflates two processes. One, the, yes, rather triumphalist um, and unnecessary uh, encouragement by America in particular, of the spread of NATO um, and the, the persistence of NATO at the end of the Cold War. It conflates that, which was real, with the the fear of countries in Eastern Europe that, that they were vulnerable. Different fears, different countries, different degrees of vulnerability. I mean, I, I don't have the expertise and the knowledge to tell you whether there was an example in Eastern Europe of a country where most people really didn't want to have anything to do with NATO, but uh, their government just went along with it because um, they thought it would please the Americans. I suspect that probably, that the example of such a country probably exists, but Ukraine is not that country. It's very important to understand that before Russia intervened in Ukraine in 2014 and illegally annexed a large part of um, Ukrainian territory. Before that happened, Ukrainian membership of NATO was not really on the agenda. Uh, the Ukrainians were not interested in NATO. they didn't see the need. Um, it wasn't a big priority. It was as a result of the um, not just the fear but the very fact that they had been invaded by an enemy against whom they had no defense that um, made them think, well, maybe the only way to protect ourselves is is to be in NATO. And and they were right because it would have been the only way to have protected them. The idea that if NATO had been abolished in uh, the early nineties, and that Russia could somehow have been brought inside a new European security architecture, well, there could certain NATO could have been abolished, and there could and should have been a new European security architecture but the existence of that architecture is quite separate from what the various parties involved would actually have gone on and done and how would this new European security architecture have dealt for example with all the parts of the former Soviet Union which uh, Russian troops have have entered and uh, and continued to control how would they have dealt with the deaths of 10,000 people in them tens of thousands of people and the massive destruction in Chechnya, how would they have dealt with um, the fact that uh, Russian troops are still in Moldova, independent Moldova? How would they have coped with the fact that Russian troops are still in two parts of supposedly independent Georgia? How does that really fit in with, uh, with the European security architecture? Would these none of these things have happened if NATO had been abolished? Not sure. And would the countries involved have sought alliances with and weapons from countries that were not Russia in order to counter a country that they not only feared, but had given them reason to be sure that Russia was something to be afraid of. I think that that process would have continued.
0: Just as as the United States continued interfering in Latin America, has continued to interfere in what it considers its backyard without... Absolutely, um, I, I I just
1: honestly do not think that this is about NATO, and I I strongly suspect. I it's true. I do not have uh, you know. I can't point to hard evidence about this, um, but I I strongly suspect the real trigger for this latest turn of events was twofold. That the trigger itself was the um, the war in the Gorno Karabakh, where a country. Azerbaijan, that is not a member of NATO and is not going to be a member of NATO, used weapons that it had acquired from Russia and from Turkey to carry out an extraordinary military feat, conquest of a basically a Russian client statelet, Lugorna Karabakh. An extraordinary military achievement, in the sense it's a very mountainous realm. It seemed that the, uh, that the Armenians had completely fortified this area and it couldn't be taken. And, and it was, and there was nothing the Russians could do. Eventually, they got involved with their peacekeepers and, and people who I think were very naive were saying this was a Russian victory. But uh, as far as I could see, this was Russia's military and Russia's military technology being shown to be impotent in, in a, a key area of, of tension between, uh, between Russia and, and Turkey, Turkey, a NATO member. I think this spooked Putin into thinking that he was not as militarily safe as he thought he was. And that combined with this long-standing bitterness in Russia, um, this sense that the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine in the south and the east And to some extent, Kiev itself, those areas which for um, quite a lot of their history were basically controlled from St. Petersburg or Moscow, that they should be Russian again. And what I feel happened is that the fear and and the greed, the fear of threat from Ukraine and the greed to have Ukraine, they encouraged each other. One of them, neither one of them by itself would be enough. Um, if Russia feared Ukraine, but didn't feel it had any historical claim over it, then the fear wouldn't have been strong enough for the invasion. If they, if it was the other way around, and they, they felt very strongly that Ukraine was theirs, but they didn't fear it, that wouldn't have been enough. But these two things together, working away in Putin's mind in this long months of isolation as a result of COVID perhaps um, helps it as well. They uh, caused him to, uh, to pull the pull the trigger on this one to feel that he he had he had to go for it. But, you know, I want to be absolutely clear about this. No atrocities committed by some Ukrainian volunteer battalion in 2014, and no application by Ukraine for NATO membership, and nothing that has happened up until last Wednesday, nothing provides the slightest justification or excuse for what Russia is doing here. It's, it's not war. And again, I know this is going to sound emotive. It's not war. It is murder. It is simply mass murder happening on our screens, before our eyes, every day, 24 hours a day. That is all it is. It is murder of Ukrainian civilians. It is murder of Ukrainian troops. And it is murder of Russian troops. And with this, you do not start 100 years ago. You don't start 50 years ago. You don't start seven years ago you start from last wednesday and uh, everything comes from that
0: james meek thank you very much you can read james meek's reports from kiev on the lrb blog the lrb podcast is produced by anthony wilkes the music is by kieran brunt